course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of Outlaw Radio Live, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. Last time I looked, I was the legendary Burl Bear, the program True Crime Uncensored. Man over there, manager of the star, manager to the star, manager for a star, a four-star manager, <laughs> Howard Lapidus. You know, you know when I'm sitting here listening to you do the opening again for the 900th time, Yeah. time you change it. Okay. Well, think that. Uh, well, put that on I think it's and our, I'm, I'm, I know I'm stealing some time from our guest, but time you change it. Okay, I'll change it next week. Mark okay. C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, who's done a fine job picking uh, up all the dirt on our, uh, <laughs> on our guests, although I, I have more than you do. And our guest, in fact, is, well, I mentioned this on our blog, Leonard Bouchel. He is famous in radio because he was doing a live radio show. Is this a show where you're allowed to interrupt the yes, uh, yeah, moderator? Yeah. Well, good. It's very nice to be here with Howard and and uh, Burl Bear. Uh, for again, I think this was we did this a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. I think I, he's, he's, he's not not good to be here with Mark, though. Obviously, no, uh, no. Not. I don't want to be here. <laughs> he was. Do, you were doing a live radio show with your brother. I was in 1968. New York? Yes, I was 12. Under the name Ryan and Ryan? <laughs> Under the yeah. name WLDB, the underground shoots up at midnight. <laughs> Little did we know how prophetic that title would be. Well, the only live radio program is interrupted by a police raid. <laughs> hey, hang on a second. Is the underground... Underground shoots up at midnight. At midnight. Thank you. Okay. Yes, we, we played underground music, and I, the show I went like on from from midnight to four in the morning. And we did, in fact, get raided one night. By the by, way, Leonard, the why police. four? I mean, as long as you're going that long, you could have got Stop it six. either three or five. Because they said the coke would wear off after about three hours. <laughs> that makes sense. And so we wanted to wind down. So I want you to share with our beloved audience, and with us as well, why the hell did the cops come raid your radio show? Uh, the previous week, our pension was raided. Well, pension, because it was Atlantic City, it was a rooming house, uh, was raided by the police with my name and my brother's name on a search warrant. And fortunately, we weren't there. <laughs> yes, good. <laughs> But we did leave town immediately, and my brother decided to go back on the air the following week. And they were still looking for him, and they arrested him on the air. And they, our, our co-host uh, called it like a play-by-play, -play, like it was <laughs> like a, a sporting event. Here come the handcuffs. Yes, and he did get arrested. He did go to jail. Right, live on the air. Yes, live on the air. I think that's the only, the only way to do it. There's it's funny, too, because I don't know if our listeners took us seriously, because the week before we had the Flying Walenda brothers <laughs> doing their act on the radio. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it looks great. That and tap dancers look really good on the radio. Yeah, but it was true. And uh, how did you bail your brother out? Uh, fortunately, we saw an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer how they had found some weed growing in some empty lots in South Philadelphia. <laughs> 
and my uh, best friend who was Italian said we, I can we can go to South Philadelphia I'm allowed in <laughs> and we rode around until we saw a vacant lot with weed growing and we went in with a hacksaw and chopped it down and stuck it in the trunk of his car rode away with some of the leaves still blowing in the wind and we sold it and we got my brother's bail money how else would you get <laughs> bail money? I don't have any idea. that's a way to put yourself through college <laughs> There was a time when, you know, it's, it's been said that men in America will spend more time picking out a tie than they do picking out a career. But you had a great deal of foresight. When you were in high school, you knew what you wanted to do for a living. Uh, yeah, I wanted to be a lawyer. Yeah. That was my main goal. I wanted to study law. I, I read a lot of law books for laymen at the time. Uh, but my career was cut short by being arrested and realizing there might be more money in being a defendant <laughs> than a lawyer. And my sort of concentration skills after copious amounts of marijuana diminished. So I did not become a, an attorney. Instead, you went to Israel. I was... <laughs> yeah, well, I want to say if I had become an attorney, I would have probably been arrested at some point <laughs> because I understand how good they are at skirting any legal obstacles to uh, morals and normalcy. Uh, I did go to Israel, and I did not go to Israel to become a smuggler. I went to Israel because there was no hashish available in Philadelphia at no. that time. <laughs> and we looked on the globe, and we were smoking a lot of red Lebanese hash at the time. And my friend and I noticed, oh my God, Lebanon, it's right next to Israel. There's probably some camels coming through once in a while. And so that's why we went. Our families thought we were going to discover our, our roots. Yeah, the Jewish roots. You know, our friends thought we were going to make money. Uh, we were actually just going to cop. <laughs> so what did you do the whole time over there? Did you just get stoned? That was it? Well, we saw the sites. We walked down the streets that the Jesus walked down. Uh, we went to the Red Sea. Did he care? Did he care whether we were walking in his footsteps? We weren't wearing the right sandals, so I think he ignored us completely. They were not handmade by the slaves. So uh, we went to a lot. We had a beautiful time, and it was a very spiritual experience. In fact, we both, I don't know what he put in the Wailing Wall as a note, but I certainly remember mine, which was, Dear God, please don't let us get busted flying back into Kennedy Airport. And the Almighty said, Okay, we won't. It was too easy. I would have asked for pounds of the dope. Well, that, that would, that's what you would have asked for. But yeah. people who get excessive and grandiose end up going to jail. So we so, found that if you stayed moderate... Billy Hayes comes to mind. Billy Hayes from Midnight Express. Express. Yeah, I couldn't watch that movie until I had 10 years clean and sober because it was too frightening. Yeah. Yeah. And a good uh, Jewish boy. Yeah. <laughs> when did you see them all? Uh, tell us the exciting story of, I mean, as long as we're dwelling on what it was like before, getting that hash back to New York. Well, it was a very simple uh, exercise in fashion. Uh, the night before we flew back, we had to go uh, into Tel Aviv and buy girdles that fit us <laughs> because we were stooping the, mm. not the saleswoman, the, we were stooping the <laughs> bricks of hashish, which were wrapped in this really fine, beautiful cloth Muslim material with stamps of the farms they came on. And we were sticking them in the girdle, putting on our pants, putting on our jacket, and getting on the plane. It was 
obviously so long ago. Yeah, so you could do that. You could do that, yes. Uh, and do you have a, a young lady that you convinced this would be a good idea? Well, you know, the first time it was just my friend and I, and uh, we had to go back a year later because we ran out. No, <laughs> yes, that makes sense. And uh, on a on a on a ship from Piraeus, Greece, to Haifa, I met some a couple, some beautiful women, who I befriended, and we palled around in in Israel for a few weeks. Ended up on a little kibbutz, and uh, in the end, one of them volunteered after I pressured her into into flying back to Kennedy with her whole body loaded. So it was a body stocking that we loaded up with hashish, and uh, she did very well. She made and it. Of course, we had to take a boat back from, to Marseille, and as we were walking down the plank in Marseille, one of the bricks of hash fell out of her body stocking onto the ground, and she picked it up like one would, you know, it's a small change that you just dropped, and, and put it in her purse, and we took a train to... Paris, and we got there on New Year's Eve. It was a very exciting night. And uh, the next day, she flew back to New York. All in one piece. I mean, I know you don't want me to talk about how she woke up in the middle of the night screaming and yelling, I'm not, I can't do it. I know I'm going to get busted. I know I'm going to get busted. And I had to keep her from yelling one way or another. And all I had at my disposal were my hands. And we worked it out, and she flew back, and uh, all, all, all went well. Yeah, Leonard, on the we worked it out part. <laughs> we discussed it. Stop screaming, uh, lady. <laughs> through, lady. Through lady. groaning and, and me yelling. He was very persuasive in his younger days. Now, you, you went None up. of this am I proud of. Please let no, me no. say that uh, Do you wholeheartedly. That? Do you recognize that person? Anymore. Would I recognize that person that, that I was back then? Yeah. Um, yes. Didn't have gray hair. Uh, very handsome, but willing to do anything to get high. And that's not me anymore. Hmm. Yes. That's right. They're healthier now. You had what, what are you willing to do anything to do? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that question, Your Honor? I mean, can you repeat that question? <laughs> Uh, Burl, Bear, uh, Howard. Hey, it was it was actually me. What what would you be willing to pay a lot of money to do? Or go to any what would what would what would make you feel good now? Now? Yeah, now the drugs no. But uh, what do you what do you like? Front to, row seats. What do you like to do? Well, front row seats for a long day's journey into night last year, starring Jessica Lang. I would pay three hundred dollars for. Luckily, I only had to pay one hundred and fifty. Uh, great, thea great theater. Um, I would pay money for it. maybe uh, to fly. Business coach is a thrill on Virgin Atlantic. I I've never. Uh, that that's a trip. That that's worth the extra few hundred dollars. And I find paying my rent every month is an extremely enjoyable experience. Uh, it's not palatial. It's an apartment. It's the third floor. There is occasionally a working elevator, which I use <laughs> when I'm tired. Otherwise, I like to take the steps. Uh, <laughs> -dum -dum. 
But once you take the 12 steps, you can almost climb to any height, actually. So right now, money can just... Uh, you know, I live a modest life, almost zen-like. Uh, and I find that the intrinsic value of life... I saw a terrific film last night called Lucky, starring Harry Dean Stanton. Ooh, last that he made film. as an older dying man, and in fact, he did die right afterwards. And the film asks those kind of questions, like what's truly important? You know, family, health, uh, art, culture. Um, to not be enslaved by any religion or politics, I think. And right now in America, it's really a challenge to have a good day, I think. Uh, you know, how can one avoid the news? every minute uh, you can't especially since I've recently discovered that I'm addicted to the internet email Facebook I don't do Twitter I don't do Instagram uh, but I just it was just a beautiful article written about how some people will actually tap their phone in one way or another for one reason or another 1200 times a day or more I'm probably in the couple hundred because I have these different apps and these different businesses going on and I have a newsletter that I put out I'm always interested to see how many people are opening it to see how many people are reading it to see what stories mm -hmm. they're reading and I'm, and I'm obsessed on a daily basis so I'm totally my umbilical cord is connected to Google mm -hmm. and Facebook and the internet in general and I'm wondering how and when I can <clears throat> curtail that and I don't know if I'll be able to because I feel that Cell phones are the new smoking. You know, I drive by places of employment and people are out on break. They're not smoking anymore. They're on their phone. It's a, it's a great stress, stress, stress reliever, but also probably stress provider when you see pictures of your friends going to great places that you can't afford to go. <coughs> so it's a diminisher. But then they try and sell you something to make up for how diminished they just made you feel, which um, I guess is the you know, advertising since day one. I have a, I have a, uh, a bizarre theory that people, the, the younger generation that grew up with these devices, um, are more connected to the devices than they are to people. Well, it's a, it, 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 a high-tech, low-touch yeah, world we're living in. It's much easier to be on the phone and be connected than it is to actually be connected. I think Much one of the, the symbols of how the, the, the race might be not have a long time to go uh, is that teenagers are having less sex now than they have been in the past because they're more comfortable in their bedrooms, on the phone, texting friends, rather than going out and meeting them actually spending time. And I wonder, you know, what, what kind of... You know, serotonin and endorphins are created by texting compared to hugging someone or dancing with someone or kissing with someone or, you know, God willing, fornicating. <laughs> if all goes well, yeah. Yes. So I, I, I fear for this generation that might not be able to have a conversation uh, because conversation is passe, perhaps. Everything is done in very short bursts of communication. Hmm. Fascinating, Captain. Of course, I think every generation says something similar about the new generation. 
But I don't think before Nagasaki and Hiroshima, people could have said, you know, one lunatic can destroy this entire world. That wasn't true. That's right. Before the 1940s. Before like, damn, genius Einstein figured out how to blow up the world and was sorry <laughs> that he figured that out. Hey, so he wished he hadn't. Uh, so uh, people do didn't. say that, but I think it's Einstein different. didn't figure out how to blow up. That wasn't his contract. It wasn't his. Okay, I take it back. It was Marconi. That's okay. I will not say anything <laughs> no, anti-Semitic uh, from here on in. No, the, the, uh, the, the concept of the atom and its function was known, you know, 75, almost 100 years before Einstein came along. So okay. what did he do? Uh, Einstein, Einstein took uh, the idea that space and time uh, are connected. They're one and the same, space-time. And that from that, in the Maxwell's equations of uh, uh, electromagnetism, he, he melted them together to come up with an explanation for what gravity is and how it works. He also came up with the idea that no matter, <clears throat> all observations are dependent upon where you are. Yeah. Your frame of reference, that's why, every, that's why it's called the, the relativity. Because everything is relative to the observer. And in the Conservapedia, the Encyclopedia for Conservatives, it actually said, until so many people thought it was a joke, and I read it in the original form, that Einstein's uh, e, you know, e equals mc squared was part of a liberal plot to make all things relative. <laughs> that was a joke, too, but well, it wasn't. I think he did marry his cousin. Well, doesn't everyone. Certainly um, Lewis my, did my that. My grandparents? Also. No. Over my Trump voters. But they were from Russia. <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis did, remember? Yes, of course. Yes. Well, no, no, yes. That, that hurt his career somewhat in England, because he was 13. It was perfectly normal where he came from, from his frame of reference. Does John Ford Coley come into any of this? You know John Ford Coley? Uh, no, but I was just wondering if he came into this discussion. Because he had a middle name? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like Harry Dean Stanton and John Ford Coley. They were probably husband and wife at one time. Glad we got that cleared up. So you became... By virtue of wanting to beat your own knees, you became a, a drug smuggler, pot seller, pot sticker, uh, and uh, and you had children. Was it a challenge to maintain your drug selling career while raising a child? No, it was not. <laughs> that answered that. Never ask a yes no question. What were some of the challenges you faced after dropping the kid off at school? Well, the challenges were going about your business, doing business, and not getting arrested. That makes and sense. And being able to get back to school at 3 o'clock to pick the child up. Now, did uh, the kid know what Daddy did for a living? Uh, we felt that secrets were more dangerous than drugs. So, yes, he did. Was he embarrassed by that or enthusiastic about that? Or uh, he saw that it gave us a very rich life of travel and friends and... <laughs> Lots of social activities. Speaking of social activities and friends, you got to interact with all sorts of famous people, such as, name one. <laughs> Joey Pantoliano. Yeah. Well, A.K.A. Joey Pants, Emmy Award-winning actor, activist, writer, filmmaker, fabulous individual. Uh, follow him on Facebook. He's got some very interesting posts on a regular basis. Hey, did you meet Gina Rollins? When I was, before my drug dealing career took off, I was a photographer for a couple local underground newspapers in Philadelphia, and the film uh, 
Woman Under the Influence had just been released, and Gina Rollins and John Cassavetes came to Philadelphia, and I was assigned to take their pictures while someone else did an interview with them. So I did meet Jenna Rollins and John Cassavetes. That's great. It was a very memorable day. She was very... Give you the... <laughs> yeah, she gave me the thumbs up from that movie, which I think maybe three or four people listening to the show actually saw A Woman Under the Influence. But it was Peter Falk. Yes. Amazing. Great movie. One of the probably Cassavetes' best, most coherent films, I think. Speaking of incoherent films, uh, your close personal friend, Robert Downey Sr., you were in one of his films, at least one of his films. I was in a film called Two Tons of Turquoise to Talos Tonight, mm. a.k.a. Jive. Uh, it didn't fit on the, on the marquee, <laughs> the Two Tons of Turquoise to Talos Tonight, but Jive did, yes. I watched part of that. Part <laughs> is the optional word here. Which part, bro? <laughs> Which part? I didn't see you, but I did see these women uh, throwing things back and forth and having a conversation about something. Well, I think the film starts off with uh, uh, some gentleman playing softball on horseback. <laughs> I think it was his comment on polo somehow. Uh, yes. And uh, he has uh, still writing scripts and doing some interesting things in New York City. How does he support himself? Any idea? Royalties. Yeah. He was did a lot of the other. Putney Swope is still selling that all his films. Greaser's Palace, film. one of the great westerns of all time. Greaser's Palace. <laughs> the strangest westerns of all time. Yeah, it was a very father and son. The the first, is that the son. first time Robert Downey Jr. appears on film? Because he was just a little tyke then. I believe it might be. But then he later. No, I think he was in. Pound. He played a puppy. Robert Downey Jr. played a puppy in the movie Pound. Hmm. Also a great film. I like Reese's Palace. I'm glad you do. I'm sure Bob will be happy about it. That yeah, also. Yeah, call him up right after the show. Tell him Burl liked that film. We're gonna add your quote to the to the DVD spot. Yeah, box I liked set. it. <laughs> Better than the other one. Uh, Patty Swope. That became a hit. That was a big one. Yeah, for many years people thought Bob was black. Because it was about an advertising agency. And I that think was a 71, 72? 72, maybe, yeah. for, for oh, greasers. Yeah. Putney, I think, might Putney have been was, a little earlier. Yeah, I saw that in Boston when I was living in Boston. So that's, that's my memory of Putney Swope. Mm -hmm. But a massive movie. It was a, it was, and it was one of the first movies without a lot of hype right. that just ruled and caught on and caught on and caught on. A low-budget film that did become a cult classic. Yeah. It yeah. played in every art house, and then oh, even, no, yeah, no, it even, was played in the regular even, mainstream yes, theaters. Yes, it was. Seattle it was very funny. Mainstream. That medium cool. Oh, Putney Swope was funny. It was legitimately funny. And clever, too. That, too. Yeah. See, so you've really had this amazing career doing all sorts of things that didn't pan out. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I've managed a couple musical acts. Uncle Vinty, for one. Oh, yeah. Uncle Huge. Vinty. Yes. Yeah. yes. You should have stopped with Uncle Melty. <laughs> <laughs> like the Broadway Danny Rose of Philadelphia. That's a, as a backhanded as a compliment as I've had all day. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it is. Uh, photographer, you worked at the racetrack. I was the official phot photographer at a racetrack. Oh, those photo finishes. 
No, not no. the photo finishes. The trophy shots. We have no. to get very close to the horse as the as the front horse. I almost got run over my first night. It was harness track. It was not as glamorous as thoroughbreds, but it was still. It was in Richfield, Richmond. No, no, Rich. It was somewhere outside of Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> The, uh, the, yeah. <laughs> the horse racing capital of Ohio. Well, right, which is now, I hear, the overdose capital of America. Yeah. That's a whole other issue. In fact, was it you that was telling me about the thing that's going to be on the uh, 60, 60 Minutes? minutes, but I have a feeling this show is going to be archived. So you've probably already seen the 60-minute episode that's going to be playing on October... This is October. October 15th. A 60 Minutes episode oh. about how the DEA was thwarted in their attempt to curtail the opiate, quote-unquote, epidemic by bigger commercial corporate forces. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. So it seems as though this might have been some sort of governmental population control exercise. Really? Interesting theory. And why would they want to do such a thing? Kind of like eugenics. I don't know. I don't. I. I. My. 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 Uh, my thought. My. My corrupt thinking only go t can take me so far. It can't take me into the world of life has no value. World. Yes. The corporate world of it doesn't matter how many people die as long as our stockholders continue to get bigger dividends. Um, I can tell you from personal experience that uh, opioid abuse uh, contributed to my girlfriend's death. And it's, uh, there's nothing dead. sadder than, than, than losing a loved one to anything, especially if they're young and especially if it's... 32. Very young. Well, that's very young. Very young. Um, uh, I was her mule. We went uh, every other month to Tijuana, mm -hmm. and she used the, pad of, the prescription pad she stole from her psychiatrist. And she wrote her own scripts for her and her mother, and I would take her to Tijuana to get them filled and we bring them back. Well, I'm sorry to hear it ended that way. Seldom yeah. um, ends well when you're dealing with heavy amounts of opioids. No, it's a... It's well, a, she, uh, uh, she had the, uh, this powerful muscle relaxant to go with it. So the opioids, the muscle relaxant, and uh, a glass of wine. Oh, that'll do. It'd be like, uh, what's her name? Uh, Dorothy Kilgallen? Okay. Dorothy Kilgallen died from that. Oh, but they, uh, what's my line? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they don't teach kids in school life-saving tips like, if you're crazy enough to do heroin, don't drink. Or if you're crazy enough to drink, don't do heroin. They don't warn, they don't tell them that. And the majority of people who die from heroin overdoses are also drinking and taking other downers at the same time. It's not good. Not good. But they don't tell them these little life-saving tips. So, Leonard, we, we talked a lot about uh, the days of uh, yo or your uh, when you uh, did all kinds of uh, funky things. What are you doing now? And how'd you, you get know, here? Luckily, 23 years ago, I was having a very bad day. Some people would call it a bottom. And I stopped at a phone booth, which is where I made most of my phone calls from, and my friend came out of the supermarket and looked at me and said, you don't look too good. And 
I said, I don't feel too good. And I asked her if this, I asked her, she had gone to the Betty Ford Clinic about th six months before that. And I asked her if they had an 800 number, because I thought maybe that's what was going on, because I had been up all night, I had a ferocious hangover, I couldn't stop throwing up. And uh, she gave me the number. And luckily, when I went home, there was someone taking a picture of my house. And a friend of mine had just been busted a week before for bringing in a load of tie stick into San Francisco. And I thought, he's in jail. He's telling them where he comes to get his Hawaiian stash once a, twice a year. And they're taking a picture of my house to show him in jail so they can come back and arrest me. So once the photographer left, I went in, I packed up. Uh, 23 years ago, I still had a cell phone, even then, and I called the 800 number, and I didn't know they were doing an intake on the phone, but they asked me a lot of questions, and it seems as though at the end they said, well, you qualify. I was still a little surprised. <laughs> and then they said, how are you going to pay for this? I thought, I don't know, I gave them some, some insurance numbers from Blue Cross Blue Shield, which I can highly recommend. And uh, they called me back the next day and said, your insurance covers this 100%. And I started crying hysterically. By then, I had already gone down to Big Sur, and I was at the bar at Ventana. And I thought, the jig is up. I, don't ha I can't not go. And it was summer, so I had been raising my son, but he was home with his mother for the summer. And I thought, I have to go. And I was hysterically crying. And I... Drove to Rancho Mirage. Massage. No, Rancho no massage. Rancho, Rancho Mirage. <laughs> and and I went up to the front desk and I said, "Is this where you check in?" And they said, "Check in. This isn't a hotel. This is where you get admitted, like a hospital." I thought, "Oh, okay. Excuse me." Uh, and then I remember getting uh, examined by the nurse and uh, and afterwards. I said, they're not going to try and brainwash me here, are they? And she said, no, of course not. And then somebody came and to take me to my room and handed me a big book, mm -hmm. the Alcoholics Anonymous big book. And as it hit my hand, it made a thump, like as if it was Mein Kampf. <laughs> you know? Or maybe, maybe the Bible, even worse. And I thought, okay, they're not going to brainwash me, but not to say that my mind couldn't have used a little rinse at that point. And that was 23 years ago, and I stayed for the 28 days. So how, how old were you at this point? I was... That would give away my age. <laughs> I was not young, but I hadn't... I was in my prime, let's put it that way. <laughs> it's like Gene Brody. And, uh, of course, you can look my date up, my birth date on Wikipedia. Uh, so I stayed there for 28 days, and lo and behold... The, the, the great realization was I had gone one month without smoking a joint, taking a Percodan, taking any ecstasy, or having any vodka or tequila. And I thought, it's humanly possible not to get high every day. And I remember sitting there on a Sunday, which was a fairly slow day. They kept you very busy, thank God. Uh, but Sunday was visiting day and I wouldn't let any of my friends or family come to visit because I said I'm doing this on my own I'm here for me I'm doing this for me and I don't want anybody to see me here like as if it was a prison 
And so I was sitting under a tree and I had this experience where suddenly I saw a feeling coming towards me like a locomotive. You know, like a, a giant, a feeling coming towards me, coming towards me. And I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen? Because I had never had a feeling come towards me without trying to adjust it, block it, shield myself, enhance it, to somehow sculpt it to what I wanted that experience to be. And here a feeling came and left. And I thought, oh my God, feelings come and go. You know, it's a very probably immature thing to think, you know, I, I want to be high all the time. Or if I'm sad, I'm going to be sad for the rest of my life. It's a very immature way of thinking to not realize that feelings come and go. And they can be, you know, dealt with. They can be felt and let go. They can be adjusted by taking a nap or reading a book or you know, all, the, all the ways that normal, healthy people deal with emotions. And uh, so just to see them come and go, I thought, okay, that's an interesting revelation. And after 28 days, and I remember before I left, I had had uh, some Valium. And they said, well, we need to watch you flush things down the toilet. And I said, why? They're Valium. And, and they said, well, you're not going to need these anymore. I said, but my brother might need them. And they said, you know, it's illegal to give <coughs> prescription drugs to other. I said, no, you're kidding. I never, who would imagine that? Uh, so they flushed, but they didn't see, I had some Mexican mandrakes in there that they didn't recognize. What's a Mexican mandrake? It's like a quaalude, okay. like a cheap knockoff quaalude. Uh, and, and I thought, what am I going to do with those? Because I drove away and I thought, am I going to immediately go into the trunk of my car? I didn't. And driving back to L.A. from Rancho Mirage, I passed a liquor store and I thought, is my car going to just drive into the parking lot and go get a bottle of vodka and it didn't and I was watching my literally watching my hands on the wheel to see what they were going to do uh, and they didn't do anything we just kept driving and I went to LA and it's I find the first night I was staying with Bob Downey senior and the next morning he says what do you want to do I said well I haven't had a haircut in a while and he says well I got a great place it's called Hollywood haircuts I said okay let's go there so we're driving in his car, and the next thing I know, we're pulling into Hollywood Park Racetrack. And my first addiction was to gambling, and here I am. He says, there's a, there's a barber shop here at the racetrack. <laughs> I thought, okay. Uh, and, there's 60 barber shops you know, on the way. <laughs> and I had heard so much about this thing called cross-addiction, like if you do one thing, you're going to want to do another thing. And I thought, I've never been to a track where I didn't have to make a bet or have a Bloody Mary. I never got drunk at a racetrack. I never really ever got drunk accidentally. Uh, and here I was thinking, if I make a $2 bet, let alone a $100 bet, I'm going to end up getting a high tonight. So it was very uncomfortable. And as it turned out, the barbershop didn't have any open appoint appointments <laughs> available, so I couldn't even get... So I just sat there with you know, a ham sandwich. It was not Yom Kippur, so do not judge me. Uh, and with a, with a Coke, and not, not the Bloody Mary. Or maybe I had the tomato juice just to... Anyway, uh, and luckily, you know, something happened. Because uh, two nights later, I went to one of those anonymous 12-step groups that Craig Ferguson says you can find at the beginning of the phone book. And 
And someone said something about how the Dalai Lama came to America, and they asked him, what's spiritual going on in, in, in the United States? And he says, AA, AA, very spiritual way of life. And I thought, wow, if I stick with this, I can stop being a hypocrite. Because I had been to Zen temples in, in Japan, and I had seen Ram Das live a number of times, and I thought, wow, the Dalai Lama says that AA is a spiritual way to live in America, and I already have like 30 days clean and sober. I'm going to do this for a year and see how I feel after a year. And that year led to two years and led to three years. And, you know, I, I can't stress. And the miracles, and they talk in the program of anybody here who's familiar with the about the promises. I had a promise come true that is not in the book. And that was like uh, six years, five years after I got sober, my son came home one day and said, Dad, I want to go into treatment. And he knew the expression because I was working as a drug counselor at the time. And I said, great. And uh, two weeks later, Betty Ford gave him an amazing scholarship. I drove him to Betty Ford, dropped him off. It's, that was 15 years ago, and he hasn't used or had anything to drink or drug since. We're going to take a 60-second break to refill our glasses <laughs> and clean my glasses. We'll be right back on True Crime Uncensored with special guest Leonard Bouchel. Take your smoking, drinking, interrupting obsession with you 24 hours a day on any phone or device. And it's all free. Just go to your friendly app store and search for Outlaw Radio. Then look for the red letters on the sign with the bullet holes in it and download it. It's free. Listen free on the road, in your car, at the beach, or in your backyard. It's all free from Outlaw Radio. This is Buddy Twist. Saying goodnight from Hollywood. Hi, I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, rocked to the cradle of rhythm and blues, taking time out of my busy schedule of admiring myself in the mirror and coming what's left of my hair to remind myself and you that in my spare time I also write true crime books such as Betrayal in Blue, the true story of the cocaine cops of the NYPD. They were worried about being busted for selling dope because they were the dope selling dope. Yeah, 13 grand a year as cops, Eight grand a week, providing protection for Dominican drug cartel. True story, written by the brilliant Burl Bear, Frank C. Gerardo Jr., and the second most dirty cop in the NYPD history, Ken Urell, based on his memoir that would have made a great confession if the cops knew what it was when they found it, but they didn't. <laughs> That's showbiz. All while you're at it, by a man overboard, kind of in resurrection of Phil Champagne. And a taste for murder. Don't forget, Mom said kill. Mom said kill, too. Buy that one. Back to <laughs> True Crime Uncensored Heard of it? with Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. That's him right there. And what about what's a short? So with the Featuring corner. Mark C.G. Boyer. And our special guest today, Leonard Lee Bouchel, former. Rack on top with a rack on tour. Hey. <laughs> a rack on tour with a rack on top. A bon vivant, international adventurer. Had a way with women. They say, get away, get away. <laughs> and, but now he's seen the light. Did you see the light? It was from a, a projector, movie projector. That's what the light was. You always loved film. 
And this, to me, your stories were kind of what of follow your passion, and that's just not the lady in the heels, but it meant your love of movies. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. yes. I think it was follow your bliss. I think yes. you're quoting uh, Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Uh, love is soup. And <laughs> I grew up near Camden, actually. Yeah. Yes. Uh, where Walt Whitman is buried. So That's a I did sample, have the uh, great fortune to found and became the director of the Real Recovery Film Festival and Symposium. Uh, we're about to have our ninth week-long film festival in Los Angeles starting next Friday, October 20th. Anybody that comes to the door and says Outlaw Radio, uh, I'll either stick my hand, I'll put my hands up because I think you're robbing me or I will let you in for free. Ah, uh, where at It's seven where days. It's at the Lemley NoHo on Lancashire Avenue. Ah, it's a lovely theater. Yes, it's catty corner across from the Federal Bar and Restaurant, where we're having an opening night event. If anybody's in the neighborhood, on October 20th, Friday. Open bar. And, uh, <laughs> open to you, certainly. Uh, and uh, so we have a great film scheduled all week. I tell you, train uh, spotting one and two. We're we are having one night. It's a free screening, as a, as our appreciation to all of our sponsors and all of our supporters and all of our fans and attendees, uh, Strange Hunting 1 and 2, probably one of the best sequels ever made to a film. Uh, 20 years later, same actors, same director, same just incredibly energetic filmmaking. And if you haven't seen Strange Hunting 2, uh, you know, please check out the schedule, realrecoveryfilmfestival.org. Yeah, that's it, all right, dot .org. I remember the very first one. I went to the first one. Ben Stiller was there. Ben Stiller came to our very first screening of the movie Permanent Midnight, written by the great uh, the TV writer uh, Jerry Stahl. And Ben and him came and had a great half-hour conversation after that fantastic depiction of a out-of-control crackhead. You know, with that typical thing of... Smoking crack, but only wanting to go to organic juice bars <laughs> for, for, for his beverages. <laughs> that is not far fetched. That is very accurate. Yeah. Uh, and the last night of that film festival, we had Danny Houston, who was in a little cult classic called Ivan's Ecstasy, directed by Bernard Rose, uh, most well known for the film Immortal Beloved. Mm -hmm. And he directed this little film about a Hollywood agent based on a true story starring Danny Houston, and they came and talked about it. So our first... That was was I think that was ago. at the, uh, like the Silent Movie Theater or someplace. It like. was called the Silent Movie Theater. Now I think it's called something else. And I think it also maybe just got closed down because the... Uh, in keeping with today's news, I think the director, owner, was accused of some sort of... Uh, Panky-panky? Yeah. With his employees, something. Oh, that's uh, a no good, too. But it was a great place, and it's, I'm sure whoever's taking it over is going to do a great job. Yeah. But and the, in the middle of that, we showed a movie that we're actually having a 30th anniversary screening at the Real Recovery Film Festival of Barfly. Ah. Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke, yeah. Dunaway. And one of the actors, actresses who worked on the film as a Barfly came and spoke, and her job when she wasn't on camera was uh, sort of babysitting Charles Bukowski, who came to the set, and so she had some great Charles Bukowski well, stories. Shot at the Frolic Room in Hollywood. <laughs> and the other 
uh, 30th anniversary is less than zero. Oh yeah, it was made 30 years ago, and I wow. Think, and it's it's a better movie than you remember. It's really an incredible depiction. It's not just Downey's performance that makes it amazing. It's just the whole gestalt of of that era. Any of really, the actors who were in that film going to come by? Not yet. Not yet. Um, unfortunately, Downey Jr. is. Well, good for him. He's making a movie in Atlanta, so he unfortunately cannot be there. Uh, we did reach out to the writer, whose name is Brett Easton Ellis, mm. and he sent me back a beautiful email. He says, the thing I want to talk about least in my life is less than zero. <laughs> so I decline your invitation to attend, but good luck. Uh, so we are we're showing that, too. That's also on the James the Spader in that film also? James Spader... Jamie Gertz. Oh, Jamie Gertz. Uh, some other people who've gone on to great success. Yeah. And as we know, uh, Faye Dunaway is in Barfly with Mickey mm -hmm. Rourke, and it's probably one of the best Bukowski books made into a movie. Or maybe one of the few. Yeah, there's not had a bit of a whole rush on those things. No. So that's a really uh, exquisite film. And we have... 40 other original films that no one has ever seen. We get submissions from Europe, from Australia, from... from we have showed a film last year, an animation from Iran. Uh, so we have a lot of original material that we fill up the whole week with. The film started one uh, o'clock, ended at 10. How do you make the decisions on what you're going to take and what you're going to show? Uh, we have a, a committee, and we watch the films as if we're in a dark theater with the audience. And if we see anybody walking out, we say, no, we're not going to show that. The films have to be entertaining, honest, honest depictions. They can't uh, you know, exaggerate or minimize. So uh, up in smoke. We, we don't. We show films that teach and don't preach. Uh, we show films that inspire. Sometimes, uh, like I said, it's pretty easy to pick out the right drug and alcohol film. Somebody at the end has to die or get sober, which obviously is an exaggeration. And we also show socially relevant films, films dealing with some homelessness, which also has an addiction you know, element to it. We show some mental health films because of all the comorbid, co-occurring yeah. disorders that happen in people. Do you have one uh, this year that you kind of favor, just personally? Uh, we have a short called Travels with Annie about a time-traveling movie that someone goes back in time and sort of plays the role of Edie Sedgwick. Uh, that's a 15-minute short. That's great. Uh, what a great concept. We're showing a Russell Brand film uh, that he made a couple years called From Addiction to Recovery, Spectacular, where he talks about his friendship with, with, with uh, Amy Winehouse. Uh, very good. Uh, my favorite old film, and I'll, then I'll talk about some of the new ones, is an English film. It's the 15-year anniversary of a film called Pure, Starring Kyra Knightley and Kira Knightley, thank you, and Molly Parker. Um, best known. It's, it's Parker. <laughs> <laughs> it's Parker. Best Parker. known for her role in in uh, the House of Cards, and it's a story. Of, it's about heroin addiction, and it's this most realistic, sweet film, and you learn more about what it's like to be a heroin addict from this movie than you could from any documentary. Uh, and it's just exquisite. It's a very much about a neighborhood. and you know, Everybody knows what everybody else is doing, and she's got a son in it who 
In the morning, before school, he prepares her breakfast, including an injection of heroin. And he goes to deliver it in bed and says, here's your medicine, mommy. And there's no judgment in any of part of this film about addiction, other than it could kill you and it's dreadful, but no one's judging the people doing it. And uh, a harrowing scene, which I hate to give away, but I have a feeling most people are not listening to this in Los Angeles. And you can rent it, you can probably find it online. It's, it's called Pure. And uh, there's a scene where he begs Kyra, Kyra Knightley, who's a waitress in the neighborhood, to hook him up with a heroin so he can see what his mother is feeling and why she prefers the heroin to yeah. him, sort of. And he wants to get high and see what it's like. Of course, once the mother finds out the waitress gave him heroin, you know, she starts to think about her life. And, and it unravels or unfolds in a very tender, realistic way with not all tied up in a little bow. And, of course, there's a drug dealer involved. And it's, it's, it's every scene of the film. And I say that because I just saw We just had a Real Recovery Film Festival in Denver last month. Uh, we've had a couple there, and I got to watch it at this uh, theater on the big screen. Because uh, sometimes we do watch some of our submissions, you know, on a monitor. Uh, so to watch this film again on a big screen is like a perfect movie. So it's called Cure, and it's 15 years old. We're showing that. Uh, as far as original films, we have uh, a lot. We have a film called uh, Chasing the Lion, the story of Lionel Daniels' struggle with drug abuse while he's transitioning uh, from being one of the best Ironman triathletes to a drug addict and back again. Uh, and Did you I, show the what up with the wrestlers uh, uh, about uh, Jake the Snake? Jake the Snake is not on the schedule. Did you have that one a year or so ago, though? Didn't you? Have that? We did have Jake the Snake about the wrestler. Yeah, that was uh, a great one. We have a man. We have a new film called the The Man Who Built Peace uh, about Frank Buckman, who was important right after World War II in getting the League of Nations together. But he also started the Oxford Group, which AA based its principles on. So without the Oxford Group, there might not be. Alcoholics Anonymous. So this is about uh, Frank Buckman. We have the best new documentary about the opiate crisis. It's called Dying in Vain, uh, called The Opiate Generation, made by a filmmaker in Utah who's flying in uh, to present the film. Uh, just one of the most... It's a true documentary where she takes these two women who are best, best friends and heroin addicts, or as they say, uh, uh, drug misusers, they're heroin addicts. Uh, and she starts filming them, and not knowing if the film is gonna end with one of them dying, getting sober, getting going to jail. So it has that old documentary style. We're not gonna know how this ends until it ends. Thank God neither subject dies. Uh, one does get sober. They both get sober. One relapses, one doesn't. It's a fascinating film. And that's showing on Monday at 1 o'clock, October 23rd, uh, at the Lemley. Dying in Vain. Really, really great film I can highly recommend. Um, 
It was just an interview with the filmmaker on NPR for an hour. Uh, how does one see this? Is, is there a, a charge per ticket? How, it's $10 per screening. And so we'll have like five shorts together that counts as a screening, and then we'll have more feature length films. And we've never turned away for someone for lack of ability to pay, but we only ask $10 payable at the door. Uh, it's a beautiful theater, 160 seats at the Lemley, and uh, you know, great we're happy Persian to be back there. Across the street, too. I'm sorry, what was that? It's a great restaurant across the street. I'm glad about that. I'm <laughs> sure that, that the restaurant is happy to know they're having your anonymous endorsement. Yes. Uh, we have one other film called uh, The 10th Step, which is not necessarily about the 10th step according to AA, but it's about a guy who, get, who did a lot of work in Nepal, and half the film is shot in Nepal, and it's gorgeous, and the music is amazing, and the photography is amazing, and it's about someone who had been, had alcohol abuse issues and beat them through the program and goes back to see the villages that he used to work in. And it's a beautiful film called The Ten Step. Uh, we have another film called Ask. Um, the tagline is, can love addiction survive, can love survive addiction and codependency? And the great thing about it is they don't answer any questions, but they <laughs> ask a lot of good questions. Well, we're going to say quick. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, you got to come back. You got to come back. Thank and you, see Howard. Us, uh, faster uh, next. It'll be okay. So we're not going to wait till the tenth anniversary. Oh, we have an award show called the Experience Trends and Hope Awards at we'll the Writers that. Guild. Good. Okay. Yeah, okay. that'll be next time. Thanks, Leonard. Hey, bro. Sure. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen of the Demons of Decadence live from the Light Up Lounge at OutlawRadioLive.com.